Here's a fun question. Are you good enough to be where you are? I mean, you must be because you're there, right? Today on Bottomless Coffee, we're talking with Ray Hunter. Ray is this close to securing her PhD from Emory University, despite having to overcome outright adversity, outright racism, and a form of imposter syndrome. In our conversation, we discuss how Ray has had to leverage resilience, strategic thinking, and self-care to achieve her goal of becoming a scientist. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bottomless Coffee. Um, This time we're gonna talk about growth, um, how we grow, how we become uh, maybe not better people necessarily, but different, and um, how that can be really uncomfortable uh, if you're not used to it. And I wanna give you just an example from my personal experience. You know I'm relating it back to that um, Back to that political campaign again. I hate fundraising. Fundraising is the worst. And when I looked back and kind of did that autopsy of the campaign, I was like, Jerome, you knew it was a weakness before you started. It remained a weakness the whole time. Yeah, you just stayed uncomfortable with it instead of leaning into it. And so that is actually why at the beginning of all of these episodes, we start with join our Patreon community and support this content because that helps me become accustomed to asking for support. Um, And, you know, by the time I get to my next campaign, I'm really hoping to be like that, uh, that Bernie meme, you know, it'll be me and some mittens or what have you, and we will really be going for it. So today we are here with Ray Hunter. Hi, Ray. Hi, how are you doing? It's so great to be here. Yes, it's really um, just a privilege to have you. I'm really excited for this conversation. And for our listeners, um, Ray is the sister to Ron Hunter from episode six. And no pressure, it is still our most popular episode. (laughs) Yes, we have some competition. We are out today. (laughs) I think I heard that you're competitive. I'm not sure. Just a little bit. He did always beat me in Monopoly, so. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> um, so um, since since you brought up childhood, <laughs> and what he told us about your journey is that you grew up, you became, I believe, an educator. That's correct. Okay. And then at some point, you, you switched careers, and now you're pursuing a PhD at Emory University. At Emory University, yes. In okay. biology. Mm-hmm. Now we're we're gonna go through all of that because yeah, we I'm have so a interested. <laughs> <laughs> but the perspective is gonna be on um, your growth and growing outside of your comfort zone. So would you mind just giving us like a I know I just kind of walked through it a little bit, but fill in some of those details um, on where you started and how you got to where you are now. Yes, definitely. So during my undergraduate time, I went to Georgia State University undergrad, go Panthers. Um, during, during that time, I actually was a psychology major. So I majored in psychology, um, did a bachelor's of science um, for that degree. And during my third year, I decided I actually wanted to pursue medical school. Mm. And so I took additional courses 
And so I was on track to do medicine and obtain my MD. Okay. Um, I was very passionate about addressing um, inequities in education, just from a lot of my experiences at Georgia State as an undergrad. Mm. And so during this gap time, you know, usually people take a gap year. So I took a gap two years and additionally, even more years. Um, I'll explain that a little later. Sure. Um, <laughs> but I actually applied for Teach for America and I was accepted and I became a oh, 2011 core member. And so Teach for America, typically they'll do a summer training for you. And then you will be placed in a school that is in need of teachers and uh, typically in underserved areas um, yes. for education. Doing the work. So I, I always wanted to be a teacher. Interesting story. I used to set up my little plush animals and oh, make okay. tests for them <laughs> <laughs> and do all of that. Um, I loved getting stickers and like grading, helping teachers grade when I was growing up, all of that. And so I actually became a educator yeah. and I was placed in eighth grade physical science. So I taught eighth grade physical science. That talking about growth and development, um, that was a very tough time for me where mm. I honestly, I was still growing into an adult, like what I wanted what I desired for myself, who I was, and then also who I am as an educator, especially in my first year of teaching. And, you know, you get training and the training was very rigorous. It was great training, but I always tell people there's nothing like actually being in the classroom sure. that will make you an actual teacher. You can get all the training in the world, but your best training is in that first year of actually teaching yeah. your own classroom and being a leader in that classroom. And so a lot of growing pains, you know, what, what works for me as an educator, like how do I motivate my students? How do I, you know, engage them with the material, especially in science? A lot of them by eighth grade just did not think they were smart enough to do science. Oh no. Or interested. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting um, to see and also heartbreaking at times to see my students get defeated and feel they did not have the intelligence to actually complete the work that, you know, we were wow. engaging in and doing. So one of the things I love to do is I had a chemistry portion and everybody loves food. So yeah. <laughs> we would do a lot of cool experiments that always, you know, somehow there was food in the mix. We would make <laughs> butter, ice cream, you know, talk about chemical oh, sure. changes. What are these molecules? What do they make up? You know, um, just to engage them in it and for them to have fun and see science isn't for a certain person that looks a certain way. We all can do science. We all can engage with this and you all are young scientists. So that was, became my mission oh, that's beautiful. for those two years. And then I really enjoyed it. And I uh, did an additional two years after that. So I taught for four years and in my, around my third year, I decided I actually wanted to pursue a PhD. Okay. and engage in research instead because of the impact that I would have on a larger group of individuals. So if I develop some treatment and then that can actually be applied in our society for a lot of people that are affected by a certain disease, I decided to go ahead and pursue that instead. And that was an experience as well. Um, going back to school full time, I first oh, yeah. went to complete my master's. I needed some more research experience because I was, of course, a psychology um, undergrad student. And so I did not have as much lab research experience that I needed. 
And I knew I wanted to focus on cancer research because of our family history of breast cancer. Oh, okay. So I uh, applied for my PhD um, and I was uh, very thankful to actually get accepted in Emory University um, in the fall of 2016. Wonderful. Oh, 2016, okay. Now is that a (laughs) seven year degree? We're almost there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is not. Typically, um, within our program, people graduate within five and a half to six years. Oh, so, so you're I'm really actually close. near the finish line for my program now. Oh, congratulations. Thank you so much. Yes. Okay. So, this is exciting. <laughs> um, starting at the beginning, you really wanted to be a teacher. Um, as a child you said stuffed animals and stickers and it kind of sounds like um you didn't have a lot of practical knowledge about what it would mean to be a teacher and um even though and but you went to but you went to college for psychology which is a little a little different um (laughs) and i keyed in on something there that you noticed the disparities in our education system and it sounds like maybe that kind of reconnected you to your youthful passion. Is that okay? You're nodding. <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, definitely. Uh, I I initially when I went into school for college, I think I had an idea of what I wanted to do. Teaching was not on that list at all. I will be very honest with you. Mm-hmm. Somehow I did get away from that, like as a child, like becoming a teacher, and when I was a part of some initiatives that um, were led by um, some administrators at Georgia State, uh, we had the opportunity to go into classrooms and just see the differences in um, the education and the system that was set up in these different schools in Atlanta and what, you know, makes the difference for a thriving community um, of students and parents and faculty and staff, you know, and things that are missing that end up affecting, you know, those different entities. So I became very interested in wanting to do Teach for America at that time uh, after that. And I I love psychology. I could explain, like, I really had no clue. I was political science at one point, and I thought about Mm -hmm. English another time. But I really loved the idea. I loved all my psychology classes, just learning about people and why we think the way we think, why we act the way we act. And it just always stuck with me. So I decided to pursue that as a major instead. Now, did you labor over the decision to kind of leave the idea of a psychologist behind to become a teacher? I did not, actually. I I actually, um, at the end of my degree, there was this gap. I thought I'd be able to work um, with my boss I was currently with as a student, but then I was let go, actually. She sure. tried to keep me, but she couldn't. And it was during a recession, so it was 2008. Yeah. So it was really difficult for me to find a job because I didn't have as much experience in psychology either. And if you know, if you do a psychology degree, you definitely have to go on and do a master's and potentially a PhD. Oh, okay. Um, so during that gap, um, I actually started substitute teaching. Oh. And then I was like, I'm applying for Teach for America. I want to teach. I want to go ahead and do this before I go into my next step. So I was still, I was studying for my MCAT and then also in the process of applying for Teach for America at that time. Oh, you're doing a lot. 
yeah. My brother tells me, he's like, you don't have a traditional path, you know, talk to people about your experience too, because I went all the way through, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, but I, I definitely got a lot of different um, life experiences outside of academia, um, working, you know, just working full time, working with students, and then I've had the opportunity to teach as well at Emory, which I've loved. Um, so that's still there. That passion is definitely still there. So from the perspective of growing outside of your comfort zone and really keying in on an uncomfortable time in your life, which was, uh, sounds like right after graduation, during a recession. Definitely. Um, which, you know, we we might end up being in again. We're not sure how economically things are going to shake out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, with some people, I think, um, maybe could have spiraled. They could have, maybe could have um, really stuck to that path of psychology and said, well, no matter what, this is what I've already um, put time into this. Uh, and so I'm going to move forward. Um, and it sounds like maybe you saw Teach for America as an opportunity for you to grow. Um, and I don't know if at that time you had said, you know, this is going to be my forever path or what have you. Um, but you certainly took something out of the experience from Teach from, from America. And I'd love to hear more about it. So my, I always saw Teach for America. They were advertising on our campus. And from my experience that I had, I was interested in doing that. And I think somewhere in getting ready to graduate, trying to take my med school, you know, classes that I needed as requirements to apply. And then, you know, graduating and wanting to apply, you know, study for my MCAT, I got lost in the sauce mm. um, and, and got away from, oh, I should apply for Teach for America. And then during my time when I was just working, I decided that I wanted to take some time to actually go back and apply and teach um, because that was something that I was very interested in and passionate about. And it, oh, I learned a lot of skills um, mm. being in Teach for America. And it was definitely uncomfortable because you have these really quick deadlines and turnarounds during Summer Institute. We're waking up at like five in the morning, going to get your breakfast, oh. going off to the school you were um, assigned to to learn, you know, to teach actual students and train um, under that and then revise lesson plans. You're always revising, doing lesson plans weekly, seeing what's gonna engage your students, getting to know your students. Also getting to know who you are in the classroom as a person, because you might have one style that works great for you. And if I try to adopt your style, it's gonna just fall flat because that's Mm. not me, right? That's not my personality. And so learning like, okay, this person did this this way and that looks great. And then you try it and, and students are like looking at you <laughs> like a different headline. Like, no, that, that's not me. That's not going to work for me. Um, so something I learned out of there, especially they really honed in on time management, which I think sometimes I'm great at and sometimes I still need to work at. But something really big that they focus on is culture. So classroom culture and are hmm. your motivated are they excited to come into the classroom you know do they want to work um for you and also for themselves right and thinking about even where i'm where i am at in my phd program i realize even more how much culture is important for where i'm at and me thriving um Mm. and not having certain things in place where people matter and people are not just there to work and crank out tons of data or 
you know, execute things. There are also, there's a person behind that who's yeah. going through things, who has experience, has emotions, like has their own personality that can add to the mix in a very positive way if you just engage with that and leverage it. Um, I really learned being a part of Teach for America and even more so now, like how important environment, you know, culture is and just having that support and that, that positive energy infused into whatever yes. you do. Um, so that time was very difficult um, learning how to be a teacher. I mean, I had some students, you know, it was really hard for me initially to manage my classroom and get my students invested in it. And I'm like, you know, you, this is important to do. And they're like, but we don't understand why this is important, why science matters. Hmm. And finding out how to connect that with their everyday lives um, is what really uh, mattered the most. And when I was able to do that successfully, like my student engagement turned around and my students, you know, wanted to learn and wanted to be engaged in the classroom. And then just getting to know them, you will be surprised how, you, you already know, it's just caring about someone on a personal level, how much that makes them want to do whatever, you know, do the work and really be engaged because mm. you see them. You don't just see some person's tendency that needs to do this activity or execute that, but you know them as a person and they come in and you're like, this is not a good day for you. I get it. You know, oh, okay. <laughs> they appreciate that. Um, knowing that, you know, they're human first, they're people and they're going through different things. I've had some students who come in and have an eight for the day or, mm. you know, are really having problems at home, things that I never had to experience at their age. And it's really about meeting that person where they are first and foremost, and then building from there. So it's interesting. I'm hearing kind of an echo when you talk about what your students need needed and how they needed to be seen as full humans um, and how they needed to have their human experience really recognized by someone. I'm hearing that for your students, but I'm also hearing that for you. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was a moment there when you were talking about Teaching for America and how it was very difficult, but you were saying, you were sharing it with a big smile on your face. <laughs> um, and I wonder if um, there's something about the type of growth that you get coming out of a difficult experience. There's this ability to look back and say, I learned a lot from that hard time. And I, I don't think everyone has that. <laughs> and I think it's very easy to look back on a difficult time and be like, yeah, it was hard. Uh, yeah, my kids were very sad. Yeah, you know, my kids didn't get what they needed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And really, um, really get overcome by the negativity instead of looking back on that same experience saying, well, this is what I'm able to draw out from this. This is what I was able to do. Um, and so thank you for thank you for sharing just that little bit of that part of your journey, because that's not all of it. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Um, because you pivoted, you left the edu you left education. And what led you um, to that decision? Because you were it sounds like you were feeling like you were doing good work in the classroom. You know, you had you had students who were not in a good culture 
coming through, you said eighth grade, so coming through K through seven, they were they did they did not have a Ray Hunter educator because um, they felt like they weren't good enough, they weren't smart enough, and what have you. And so you were building them back up, um, which is very good work. And the work that you wanted to be doing as a child. So <laughs> um, you mentioned maybe your personal family history that made you really take a look at chemistry. And without, you know, sharing too much of the personal stuff with the whole internet, um, <laughs> what happened? So I... I, I knew I wanted to do medicine, even going into Teach for America. That's true. That's I true. was focused on, I'm going, I know I'm going back to school full time to pursue a, a, a professional degree. Um, so I, it took me a while, obviously, I took an additional two years. I, I enjoyed teaching and I also felt like it was time for my next step as mm. well in that, in that um, final year of teaching. Oh, we should and, circle around back to that. Okay, every, we're going to get back to that as she, as she talks. Time for your next step. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I was going to do medicine, and then uh, I, just, I just knew um, internally that I needed to shift. Mm. Um, and I was um, invested in going ahead and transitioning into a PhD instead. And I feel like, honestly, I would not have been able to do that or even think about myself as a PhD, as a scientist hmm. in undergrad. Like I was not ready to accept that about myself and even my own intellect. And I've told other people before, I wasn't ready to even consider or think about that as a senior in college. I didn't think I had the ability, similar to how my students, just like, I'm not smart enough to do science. I didn't yeah. think that was me. It's like, well, I'm not a scientist. I'm going to be stuck somewhere in a lab doing whatever. I'm not that smart. Like, literally, these are the thoughts I've had. And you're like, where did that even come from? Yeah. But it's just something that I internalized and maybe not seeing a lot of representation of, you know, individuals that look like me that were doing science. Um, obviously I had my brother to look up to, but he's on this pedestal for me too. Like, oh, he could do everything. My brother's so smart. He's a genius, you know? Oh. <laughs> he I is am. wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> right. Big shoes to fill. So, <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't even think about it. It's funny now. Cause we'll talk and he's like, don't talk to me about biology. I do chemistry and it's hilarious. Uh -oh. But, um, <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to do research and it had to be cancer research because our family history, um, we do have a history of breast cancer. We, I actually lost my grandmother to mm. it and my mom is a breast cancer survivor as well. And so thankful for her, you know, and us being there for, through her battle and her, her being in remission right now um, okay. and continually for the rest of her life. <laughs> yes, yes, speaking um, into being. Yes, oh. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> So, you know, I've seen that experience. I saw her go through chemo and how how hard that is on the body. Um, and those are still current standard care treatments that we use. And I want to be a part of this next phase of treatments and discovery um, for patients um, targeted towards um, different types of cancer. So, you know, people are like, where's the cure for cancer? There's not necessarily one hit bullet. Mm. Every cancer is just different. It's just very 
different. And one thing that might work for one type of cancer is not going to work for another. Yeah. And so I am in, I was interested in wanting to pursue that because of that personal connection. And then um, being engaged with my mentor that I had at Georgia State for my master's degree, she's amazing. Um, and also a black woman. And that mm -hmm. empowered me even more to um, pursue this, you know, and apply for my PhD with her guidance through it all as well. And I was accepted into Emory University. And that was my first choice. And I was really excited okay. Um, okay. when I got the acceptance. Yeah. So let me ask you, because it sounds like you had um, maybe an inferiority complex or imposter syndrome or something. And she's nodding, everyone, she's nodding. Uh, <laughs> but we really got from, you know, you, you didn't think you could do it till you did it. So like in, in the story that you just shared, so there's, there's something in the middle for sure that must've been really uncomfortable. Did you apply to, um, for your PhD thinking you were not going to be accepted? Uh, I, I, so I thought I would get into one program at least. Okay. Um, just based on how I put my application together, I was I was a strong student as far as my GPA, um, but I I know also testing like my GRE scores they weren't awful, but for certain areas, especially my math, like and I have testing anxiety too, and that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but just based on that, I think um, what someone would require, I may have just automatically been booted out just based on that, even with all of my other experiences. Um, so I felt strongly about myself as a candidate, but I also know people check boxes in admissions at times. And so you, in a way, you may lose really good candidates because of that. Well, yeah, I think sometimes people like yourself who are obviously qualified because you got in, right? <laughs> Even as you're talking about it, you're like, I don't know if my bubble is good enough. I'm like, you're in the school. You're about to graduate. <laughs> Even my first year going into Emory, I'm around my other peers and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're brilliant. And why am I here? Like, I honestly asked that. I did have imposter syndrome and it was really tough for me my first year um, because, you know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't come from a traditional biology background. Mm -hmm. I took, you know, I did my master's courses and I took biology classes in that setting, um, but I did not have four years of just straight biology and chemistry courses as yeah. well. So there was a lot of, um, I would say for me, gaps in some of the concepts that I had to study and work even harder for to get because I just didn't have all of that initially. Um, so it really did play even more so into why am I here? Like, do I have I the mean, intelligence? But you're doing it. You're you're almost <laughs> to the point where you did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's definitely been this transition and this. I would say like being uncomfortable, yeah. um, being at this this place where a lot of things were unknown for me and uncomfortable, like the growth happened in those spaces. Um, so I don't know, it's my first year here. This is a whole different setup, you know? Um, and also like this is more material and everyone's getting new material too and trying to learn it. And it's not the most comfortable place at all for you to be in. Mm -hmm. And you have to keep pushing and, and learning and, and working hard for it and not giving up because you could easily, you know, say, I'm not just going to pursue this anymore. I'm just going to step away. 
I think, you know, completing a, a, my PhD, a lot of it, and for a lot of people pursuing a PhD, um, half the battle is your intellect and the other half is just perseverance and being able to have that stamina to get through. Um, yeah. Because it, you know, it, it can be very daunting. It can be difficult. And there are different challenges at different phases of your program, you know, while you're going through and, and completing your degree. And being able to continue to push on is what matters the most, you know, not giving up. So, and I, I think one way of thinking about it that I find helpful from, because I, I went to law school and, you know, the first year is terrible. <laughs> but after the first year, you know, if someone asks you if you can ever get through the first year of law school, you're like, yeah, I know I can do it because I did it. Um, and I think a lot of people need someone to tell them that they can do it. Um, it sounds like you had your mentor, you had Ron, you had a lot of people cheering for you. And, you know, on the off chance anyone is listening who isn't sure, like, you can do it. Um, it. It can be done. You could be like Ray in the thick of it. You know, you're like, how did I get here? Oh, my gosh, this is impossible. <laughs> That can be the story you tell yourself. Yeah, Yeah. don't Don't quit. quit That's the only time you will not be able to get, like, if you just quit and leave, you know? You're not there to complete the work anymore, so. Yes, and this is a great segue to our next topic on resilience, because it, it does take some resilience to get through the hard times. Um, But let's take a quick coffee break um gather our caffeine and then <laughs> we'll be right back <laughs> yeah, <you know> <laughs> yeah. okay everybody we are back with ray hunter who who jumped the gun on me and got into it uh, because i promised you that we were going to get back to talk about um, not just resilience, but also how she knew it was time to take that next step. And in that coffee break, I said, well, it sounds, you know, like a different type of discomfort or uncomfortable. And then she started leaning in and I was like, whoop. <laughs> so please, um, I, I'm sorry I had to interrupt your thought for the introduction. Um but yeah, I, I really am very interested in how you knew it was time for that next step and what that sensation was like. Because it is different from when you had to put your head down and just trust that you were going to get through your PhD work. Um, so how did you know when it was time to leave? Definitely. Um, so I always enjoyed teaching. I I loved being in the classroom, working with eighth graders, and then I just started losing the interest and the the passion that I had for that. And I knew, you know, I was going to continue on. And I said, if I stay here, like I might just continue teaching, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I ultimately knew I wanted to pursue uh, a higher degree. So I, I just started losing some of the same motivation that I had before. Mm-hmm. Um, in my last year of teaching, and that's to anybody's disservice, definitely my students and to myself. And I knew it was time for me to transition in that because I just didn't have the same energy that I once had for putting into doing lesson plans and, and you know, working with yeah. my students and engaging with them on the level that I wanted to. It seemed like it was more effort than before. 
Mm -hmm. And I knew like with that, I needed to take a step back and look into making the transition now. And I had, you know, I didn't feel that way after year two of teaching or year three, but going into, you know, in my last year teaching, um, probably around the early spring, I, I knew like, okay, now it's time for me to go ahead and look into my next step. Yeah, I think the word that you used was fizzling. It was fizzling out yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, fizzling. I, I definitely was getting flat. <laughs> <laughs> you want to stick there with soda. <laughs> and it's, it's very, it is a very different um, type of discomfort. If you feel yourself fizzling out, then, you know, our advice to you would not be to stick with it <laughs> and to keep moving forward. Um but now let's talk a little bit about resilience. Um, resilience and stretching yourself. Uh, we've talked a lot about it a lot with, um, well, we've talked about it with actors, two different actors so far, um, familial caregivers who feel um, maybe almost weathered by the experience of having to care for a loved one. Um, Talk to me about your experience with resilience. I know you've touched on it a little bit, but I'm interested in your take. Uh, so resilience for me has been having a lot of different negative experiences, especially mm -hmm. going through my PhD and still being able to recover from those experiences very quickly and not letting them um, weigh me down, you know? Yeah. not letting them take over and take power over me and restrict me from continuing on my journey and on my path of what I know I need to do and who I know I am. Mm. Um, even in my interviewing process, I remember for my PhD, I had a, a professor tell me, you know, while interviewing me, telling me not to apply, that I shouldn't be there and I should go back and be a research specialist for several more years before pursuing my PhD. Oh. Um, first interview I ever had actually for my PhD program. That's wow. what somebody told me. <laughs> um, I did not accept. I did not go into that school. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that that started off my actual interview process for my PhD. Um, the next two institutions, of course, one of them was Emory. They were much better, pleasant experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but if I had let that one moment, you know, just cripple me, and then I had two other interviews after that that day, I had to just bounce back. I had to bounce back and put on a good face for my next interview. And um, even, you know, being in labs, we do different rotations. And I've had an experience with another professor who just didn't really believe in my abilities um, as a student mm. um, and what I could contribute. And I think they put me in a very stereotypical box of what I would be as a student, especially as a Black woman. Uh, I was like, oh. <laughs> what is what is that stereotypical box? I think in this professor's eyes, lazy, not really willing to work, always going to be late, um, just making up excuses. And even when I tried to explain how it was an adjustment for me, being coming into a space where I did not see a lot of people at all like me and mm -hmm. coming from a very diverse institution before that, um, that was even difficult for me. And and. I definitely finding community was even more important when I came into that space, you know, and I was able to do that, thankfully. But in that setting, like that was, I was not supported. I knew I wasn't going to be, and I had to also transition. Um, 
So those experiences, you know, where I could have chosen, oh, I'm just going to leave my program because I am in a setting now that's not good, it's toxic for me. Yeah. I did not choose to leave. You know, I worked with some other people uh, in that space and they were able to help me transition and get into a better lab space um, for me. But oh. those are moments, you know, where you can just choose to go based mm-hmm. on, you know, others, people's opinions of you and what they're telling you that you aren't when you know what you can do and what you're capable of. And it yes. can get to you. It can really get to you. Um, but having those people, like you said earlier, like that are supporting you, having that community of people that are going to push you still is so critical to being able to endure and to rise above um, no matter what. Um, that was very integral um, to me continuing on in my program and being successful, just having that support system and that network. And then also internally knowing like, this is what I am going to do. This is what I am called to do. Like, I know this is a part of my purpose and what I want to do for my life. Mm-hmm. Having that internal motivation as well, because external will go and come and there will be all kinds of people <laughs> trying to mess that up for you, yes. mess up your motivation, but you have to have that internal compass and drive of still pushing through for what you know you have signed yourself up to do and you will accomplish. Okay, well, you gave us a lot to unpack there. And I was kicking myself under the table because I interrupted you when you were referring to your experience as a black woman having to deal with this professor. And we we uh, glazed over it a little bit. But what I was hearing, I think, loud and clear was that this person expected you to fall into the trope of the black woman or black person. Um, yeah lazy, full of excuses, not intelligent, what have you. Because they were, it it was racist. We can say racist here. (laughs) This is a safe space. Yeah, definitely. Um, And so one, I'm really sorry that that happened uh, because that is never a positive experience. Um, And I'm so happy that you'd already built up the necessary resilience to keep pushing forward despite this person. Because there are a couple of ways it could have gone. Um, You could have stayed there and they would have failed you or they would have given you less than you deserved, Mm -hmm. um, which would have impacted you forever, right? Um, But instead you made the choice uh, somehow to get put into another lab. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, And it... But when we previously talked about resilience, we talked about how sometimes at some stages it can feel like um, just needing to survive. And I got a hint of that. You were, it almost sounded like you needed to survive discrete moments, maybe discrete periods, uh, <laughs> certainly during that particular lab. Um, it was, it, there were maybe like kind of like the dull ache of the new experience in general, and then these acute moments of pain, almost like a dental pain. Yeah, yeah. you said definitely. Okay, good. (laughs) So I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'm just like. Yeah, general dullness, I think, for some of the experiences that you're just not used to encountering. Mm -hmm. And then these very specific moments of time where you have been, someone has spoken to me a certain way, or has treated me a certain way, even if it's, you know, passively, um, that I, you know, those are definitely acute and you 
feel those even more. And, and the question is, do you become numb or do you, you know, how do you advocate for yourself in these spaces? Mm -hmm. And I talk to other grad students a lot about this too. And a lot of times we don't feel like we have a voice in a way to speak and say certain things because we still need to get our degree, you know, and to yeah. what, to what degree will someone prevent that from happening if we do speak out about certain things? Um, so it's, it's a really hard, um, space to be in at times, depending on things you experience and what you go through. And there are things in place at most universities for you to talk about and share out if you have certain experiences that just should not be happening at all as graduate yeah. students. But I think there's still that layer of um, concern, like if this gets out, what's going to happen to me possibly finishing, you know? Yes. Um, Retaliation so is real. Retaliation is real. And yeah. it's, it sucks. But... <laughs> Um, as black people, we are kind of, at least I was, I don't want to speak for you. I was brought up with the uh, understanding that there will be situations that suck and you will need to find a strategy to either get, go around or go through or go under or what have exactly. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, which I don't like. Um, <laughs> but, how do you manage this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had a, um, we had a, an episode dedicated to anti-racism, and one of the big takeaways I think for our co-host Brendan, who is white-bodied, is that you know I can't go to your house and like teach your kids or your family or whatever, you know, not how not to be racist. But that could very well that professor could have very well been his grandfather or something. <laughs> You know, and well, it, this is this is the truth. They let their families get away with all kinds of stuff to our detriment and yeah. our pain. And if they are going to be anti-racist allies, then you, you, know, you got to step up. Exactly. You know, yeah. period. <laughs> I think in some spaces, too, I I should have had more advocacy. And mm. I asked myself, you know, to what degree would I if let's say I become a professor, to what degree would a student come to me about certain concerns and I would want to protect myself over like advocating for my student, right? Mm -hmm. um, to me, I would, those are not something I ever have to think about. I'm going to advocate for my student. And I guess I can say this easily because maybe I don't have some position I'm trying to protect and job security, but I would not feel good as a person not advocating for that student yeah. um, in a certain way, right? Because you do have to manage and, and be aware of the space you're in and how to maneuver that appropriately. But mm -hmm. I would always advocate for my student. I will never make excuses for someone else treating my student a certain way. And I've had that happen in certain spaces. And it's been very disappointing um, that, you know, someone that is supposed to be a part of your network and community not support you in that way, in that space. Yeah. So. I'm glad you had the resilience to get through it. I'm glad you had the tenacity to stick with it. And, you know, and I'm glad you're thinking ahead, right? You're, well, I guess it's, I guess it's really close now. You're just, just a year or two thinking ahead when this moment. Oh, we're going to claim that. Okay, okay. Oh, this fall, honestly, this fall. I should be finished this fall. And you intend to create a space that is your space, right? And if a student brings it into your space and you are going to deal with it and you're already running through the hypotheticals of what you're going to have to do and how you'll be organized yeah. enough to support them, 
They will. They are lucky students. It, Whoever it, gets it goes here. back to environment too. Like I spoke mm-hmm. of earlier, you know, this culture. Like, are we going to do a culture of silence? We're going to have a culture of advocacy and support, and and yes. and positivity, and you know, encouragement and motivation, like through it all. Um, yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Okay, uh, you know, I'm very comfortable with that segment. Um, let's take another coffee break. I see we're, we start running long once we start talking. <laughs> but it goes by so quickly. You know, you need me to like, okay, it's a clock race. We will be right back. <laughs> We are back and we are, we got to get through this next segment <laughs> because we need to talk about self-care. We've talked about the resilience. We've talked about being uncomfortable. And I, th- I do think people largely ignore taking care of themselves, both physically and mentally. And when you are in those um, tough periods of time where it almost feels like a dull ache or what have you, um, not, I'm definitely not talking about the, the acute moments, but the dull moments. You kind of forget that there are things you can do to make it a little bit easier for yourself. Um, and in my experience, your work product can suffer when you um, are just kind of allowing yourself to suffer <laughs> and not doing things for yourself. Now, um, Ray, you spoke specifically a little bit about burnout during this last year. Um, and I think you were talking, oh, yes. You, um, during the coffee break, you were mentioning that you were evaluated very well by your students because you gave them some space. You saw them as full humans who were going through a tough time during the pandemic. Um, and you kind of allowed them to take care of themselves in a way where others maybe did not do so. And so can you just tell us more about your thoughts on self-care during this time or at any point during your journey? Self-care, so I definitely have been putting more effort towards that, Um, especially during, you know, the COVID shutdown that we had. And when I was just home, um, I really was thinking about, you know, what definitely brings me joy so during during that time when we were all you know in our in our homes, I always liked to paint and just do arts and crafts, and I got into that again. I just started buying canvases and watercolor painting. Mm. And started painting, and it was really relaxing for me to do that. I always like to do arts and crafts on the side, and I just got away from that. You know, like starting my program, my PhD program, it it's like what's room to draw or write or do anything. So yeah. I got into writing again I really like to do poetry um so just where I'm at you know writing those thoughts down and then also um doing the arts and crafts um those were really important for me to fill back up um Mm -hmm. got more into audiobooks uh as well and then just talking to family more and friends more I'm calling them seeing how they were that actually like would lift my spirits I realized too is having that community and connection with people. Um, so I am really about being connected, interacting with um, different people. And I find like in that space, like it just fills me back up. And so I was able to do that. 
um, trying to do that more often. And that would definitely, that's a part of self-care too, which is weird. Like, you know, pouring out for someone else and being there for talking to other people, but yeah. <laughs> that's taking care of me too. It, it made me feel really good to be able to be connected. So, um, One thought that you uh, may become, may not like, <laughs> that um as you transition from your career as a student to your full-time professional career you might have to like be rigorous about scheduling your self-care because i mean your career is going to take up a lot of your time <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that goes back to the time management yes. like yeah and i said that too um i'm, I'm a part of a woman's group um, through my church actually. And I was like, I need to block off time. I know we meet every Wednesday evening mm-hmm. and I need to just save that time now so I can be in community with other women. Um, so I was just thinking about that actually today too. Like how I need to make sure I schedule that. And I don't plan experiments or lab time there yeah. or anything else, but I'm just doing that um, because it's important. I am a big proponent of time management as one aspect of self-care. Because, you know, if you, and some people do it just to a, a light degree. They're like, if you call after this time, you know, the phone's not even going to ring. I'm not even going to know or what have you. Um, in the mornings, though, for me, I, I wake up before my husband, sneak out from the bed to the couch. I do some reading. You know, I um, I might turn Gardener's World, which is a show from uh, BBC, just about gardening. Or just turn on the background, look at the pretty flowers or what have you before... The day really begins um, as a way to, I think, as you said, kind of fill me up a little bit. And I don't really have the language to describe it better, like fill me up. I don't know what I'm being filled with. You know what I mean? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But I and I don't even notice when I'm impotent. Right. Um, But when I'm doing the things that I know give me that positive feeling um, I'm so much better for the day. So much better. I mean, y'all, these conversations are not easy. We come in and talking about racism. <laughs> That's not I easy. Imagine. <laughs> like, like, y'all know it's <laughs> not easy because you're not doing it. Like you're yeah. supposed to. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't to you. That was to the audience. <laughs> but it can be. It can be very tough, and so. I do make a point of taking care of myself, not always first, but I make sure that I do get taken care of. And I'm glad um, that you have made that part of your regimen as well. So as we draw to the end, um, you mentioned during that last coffee break that you really wanted to make sure your grad students um, heard this and that they took some things out. But you know, like you said, students can be pressed for time. So if you know what people need to get out of it, you know, let's let's just put it up front. <laughs> we yeah. can tell them just to go to the end and then <laughs> get what they need. Right, just go to the last 30 seconds. <laughs> um, I think uh, definitely a big takeaway for any grad student is you are worth it. You are worthy. You are there for a reason. And mm-hmm. you are will be a change agent in whatever area you are that you need to be. And someone, a lot of people actually, not just someone needs you there. Mm -hmm. Um, So continue to push and persevere. Um, Don't quit, never quit. 
and you will finish your degree. You definitely will finish your degree and get your community. Definitely get your community. People continue to support you and push you forward. Well said and a great lesson. Um, please, I, I'm rooting for you. You, <laughs> you don't know me. We've never met. <laughs> but we need you to keep going forward, even though we know how hard it is. I appreciate that. That means the world to me. I know you asked, like, what can someone listening do to support? Just yeah. encouragement on my journey. Literally that I had that written, just encouragement for my journey. It means oh, the world to me to know I have people rooting for me and celebrating me. I would make sure everyone is there at the defense as well yes. <laughs> at that finish line and, and going forward as well. So I, you know, I have it in me. I know sometimes we all get burnt out, but I definitely have the drive and passion mm -hmm. um, to be in those spaces that I'm needed. So thank you so much, Jerome. That, uh, that means a lot to me. Um, thank you for being here right at what is the beginning this is just the beginning for you. <laughs> love it, love it. Thank you so much. It is, it really is. And I, I feel excited about what's to come. Like I just, I just feel so filled with like excitement and anticipation. I don't even know what all is going to happen, but I just have that in me. So. Well, we're going to check in with you and find out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Give me all the good news. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Ray. You've been a treat, a delight. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining in the conversation today. If you would like exclusive access to live streams of these conversations, if you want to hear what goes on during the coffee breaks, or if you'd like to join a community of people who help to make this podcast possible, then please join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash Bottomless Coffee. Bottomless Coffee Podcast is produced by me, Jerome Evans, on social media everywhere as at Jerome T. Evans. Our Patreon producers are listed in the episode description. You can connect with the podcast on Instagram at at Bottomless Coffee Podcast. Our music is by Noir et Blanc V and God Mode. Thanks all, and I'll see you next time.